Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Diffusion, your international science show. Sit back and relax as we drip lemony drops of science into your eyes. My name is Mark West and this week we're featuring Ian Wolfe commenting on a recent New Scientist study into chronic fatigue syndrome and Gulf War syndrome. We're taking apart the Christmas Island Pippi Strell and is there really a correlation between sharks and the global financial crisis? Stay tuned for that. But first up, here's the news with Jackie Hayes. The older a dad is, the more likely his children will have reduced cognitive abilities. While recent research has shown a link between the age of a father and an increased chance of schizophrenia and autism in the children, there has been less focus on the age of the father and cognition. But John McGrath from the University of Queensland has re-analysed data from one of the largest studies of children in the United States. In this study, more than 33,000 children were tested at eight months, four years and seven years on a variety of intelligence tests. And when Professor McGrath and his colleagues looked at the results against the age of the fathers, a pattern soon became clear. In fact, the researchers were surprised to come up with such a clear-cut finding. And uh, they're now concerned that older men are actually accumulating more mutations in their developing sperm cells. This pattern in intelligence is the exact opposite for children of older women, which made these findings even more surprising. Offspring of older women do better in similar tests, but this is usually put down to the socioeconomic status of women. But with older dads, researchers think that this association is related to mutations in the developing sperm. Everyone's favourite black American president, Barack Obama, has signed an executive order reversing the Bush administration's restrictions on federal funding for stem cell research. Obama actually spelled out in his campaign policy last year that he would support research on stem cells. He said that the restrictions the Bush administration had placed on funding human embryonic stem cell research had handcuffed American scientists and hindered their ability to compete with other nations. The Bush administration banned federal funding of research on embryonic stem cell lines created after August 9, 2001. Of course, religious Americans are saying that this is a slap in the face for those who believe in the dignity of life. But the rest of us are excited about research that might find cures for Alzheimer's, diabetes and Parkinson's. And forensic DNA testing has finally confirmed that bodies found in a field near Yekaterinburg, Russia, are two of the missing children of Russia's last Tsar, killed following the 1917 revolution. Human remains found in a mass grave outside Yekaterinburg uh, were shown to be those of the Tsar, his wife Alexandra, and three of their children, as detailed in a 1994 Nature Genetics paper. At the time, the authors concluded that there were missing remains, likely to be the prince and one of his sisters. And since then, more than 200 people have claimed to be one of the missing Romanov children. 
But new material, teeth and bone fragments of a male and female discovered 70 metres from the original gravesite, were tested with forensic DNA techniques by two independent laboratories. The DNA tests confirmed that the new bodies belonged to people very closely related to those found in the larger mass grave. The bodies are almost certainly the crowned prince Alexei Romanov and one of his sisters, according to a report published in PLOS One. So none of the family survived the execution. The Christmas Island pipistrelle is a small species of bat that's facing extinction in the next few months. Nick Evershed interviewed Dr Lindy Lumsden, Principal Research Scientist at the Arthur Ryler Institute of Victoria, about why numbers are going down and what we can do about it. The Christmas Island pipistrelle is a small species of insect-eating bat, so it's um, only a tiny bat, it's only three grams, uh, so that's less than the weight of a 10 cent piece uh, could fit inside a matchbox. So they're one of the smallest species in, in Australia. And it's endemic to Christmas Island, so it only occurs on um, on the island. Uh, the only insect-eating bat that's on the island. You've just returned from Christmas Island doing some research there. Yeah, so I was over there um, uh, just recently to try and we know this species has been declining um, for a while and we've been doing um, a lot of research and um, on-ground monitoring and, and management actions uh, that, that Parks Australia North, the Christmas Island National Park um, people have been doing um, and we've known that it's been declining but it's been um, we haven't as yet been able to work out exactly why it's declining and that's one of the really intriguing um, parts of, of this whole um, case is that for a lot of species it's uh, it's fairly clear what, what the causes are and on a lot of tropical islands uh, habitat loss is the main cause whereas on Christmas Island um, three quarters of it is still um, primary or secondary rainforest and um, most you know, three quarters of the, the island is within the national park. So we were looking to see whether it might be predation um, causing the decline. And our theories were that um, it could be something getting either the adults or the young out of the roost. Now, there's a whole lot of introduced uh, species on the island that are potential culprits, um, but we haven't got um, exact proof for, for any of those being the main cause of the decline. It's possible that a lot of them are having some impact, and it might be that that there's a whole range of reasons the species is in decline, that it's not just a single um, factor, but it's a combination of a whole lot of factors and the potentials are things like a giant centipede. Um, other potential um, threats are um, from a, an introduced wolf snake um, and it um, was introduced to the island about the same time that the pipistrelle started declining. So in terms of trying to look at what things might be causing the decline, we're trying to see something that um, only started in the early 90s and has had a pattern of movement from the northeast across to the west. And the wolf snake's the only introduced species where this uh, that 
timing and distribution pattern does match because they were introduced in 1987 to the island, accidentally introduced. And they um, were initially just very common in um, the settlement area and then gradually started expanding out and have spread across the island um, about the same time and rates that the pipistrelle declined and shrunk its distribution across the island. But it's largely a terrestrial snake. It doesn't tend to climb, although it does climb to some extent. It's not thought to be a, um, a really arboreal snake. And it tends to be more common in the disturbed areas rather than in the primary rainforest and the pipistrelle roosts in the primary rainforest. Um, and also any of the diet studies that have been undertaken um, hasn't revealed any bats in, in the diet. Um, the other species that's over there that's probably had an added impact is the yellow crazy ants. Now, I'm sure the crazy ants have probably had an added impact, but they're not the main cause of the decline because the pipistrelle was already in decline before the crazy ants started um, exploding in numbers. But in areas where the ants had um, impacted, I'm sure they'd be an added um, threat and an added problem to, to the bats because they climb up trees and spray formic acid on anything in their, their wake. The other possibility was maybe there was some form of disease had been introduced but from the work that we've been able to do and as you can imagine on a bat that's only three grams, it's not possible to carry out a huge number of, of um, tests on it. Um, we, we were trying to, um, last when I went over in 2005, I took a vet um, with me and um, she was amazingly good at trying to get blood from tiny veins, but um, it was really limited as to how much um, blood we could actually test to do any of, of uh, those sorts of, of tests. Um, and it did show that they had um, lower white blood cell counts than is typical for many mammals. Um, but what we don't know is whether that's just typical for this species or whether um, that is indicating some form of ill health. So it's it's a really sort of a, a mystery in terms of what is actually um, causing the decline um, in the species and so that makes it very difficult um, to be able to implement um, mitigation actions. And uh, just how severe is the decline? They've declined by 99% in the last 20 years. So we're down to a, a critically low number of individuals that um, if this decline continues, then my estimate is that, that we won't have any left within six months. So what's the plan uh, if you get funding to save the bat, if it's possible? Yeah, what, what we're proposing is to take the remaining animals into captivity and start a captive breeding program. Um, I often think of captive breeding programs as a, as a last resort, um, but that's the stage that we're at now. It's, it's really um, got to the stage where there's so few animals left and because we don't know what's causing the decline and so we can't directly address that, um, we can try and indirectly address them, but we can't directly address it. Um, we really need to, to rescue the remaining animals and take them into captivity, both to stop these ones 
dying or being killed, whatever's happening, um, and also to form the basis of a, a colony that we can start breeding the numbers up so that once we have determined the cause of the decline, assuming that we can, and when we've been able to build up a population to large enough numbers that we can then reintroduce animals back into the wild and try and recreate what they once used to be. Are you worried at all that uh, the population number might have already dropped below uh, the certain level where inbreeding becomes too high and the population won't survive? Yep, there's certainly always that risk. Um, we don't know, we don't have any genetic analysis um, on the species to, to see what sort of level of genetic diversity there is. But we do have some examples of other species um, that have dropped to pretty critically low numbers and have still managed to maintain um, pretty good genetic diversity. There's a species of, of flying fox from Mauritius um, that their numbers um, dropped in the wild, I think it was to about 75, and they took 18 animals into captivity, and this was back in the 70s. And they've now got um, about 700 in captivity, and up to about they solved the problems in the wild, and up to sort of uh, well over a thousand in the wild. And they've looked at their genetic diversity, um, and the, the comment is that they've retained a remarkably high level of genetic diversity considering how few animals that they started with. That was Nick Evershed interviewing Dr Lindy Lumsden about the plight of the Christmas Island Pippi Strell. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This week's edition of New Scientist magazine contains an interview on the controversial subjects of chronic fatigue syndrome and Gulf War syndrome. Ian, you have some comments that you'd like to make about this story. Yes, I do. I looked in my intray this morning and I had my latest email from New Scientist, which I've subscribed to for a long time. It's a wonderful magazine. And they had the title, How You Can Think Yourself Sick, How the Wrong Mindset triggers chronic fatigue syndrome and Gulf War syndrome. And of course, as someone who for years has looked into the whole subject of chronic fatigue syndrome, and just last year we interviewed Dr. Robert Graves about chronic fatigue syndrome and the fact that it's a physical illness, the suggestion that you're wrong thinking that the wrong mindset could trigger it, that you've thought yourself sick, seems to be reversing the last 15 years' worth of research. So I had a look at the interview. Claire Wilson on page 26 and 27 of this week's New Scientist interviews psychiatrist Simon Wesley. Can people think themselves sick? And her title is When Illness is Mostly in the Mind. So all of this looks like it's pretty conclusive that they've decided that it's in the mind. And she goes on to say, His research into the causes of conditions like chronic fatigue syndrome and Gulf War syndrome have led to hate mail, yet far from dismissing these illnesses as imaginary... Wesley has spent his career developing treatments for them. Claire Wilson asks what it's like to be disliked by people you're trying to help. Basically, during the interview, he doesn't actually say that people have thought themselves sick or a particular mindset triggers CFS or that it's mostly in the mind. All those things in the headlines aren't in the interview. And in fact, when she asks him, how does chronic fatigue syndrome start? He says it's usually an organic trigger like glandular fever. But then he goes on to say that he thinks that people can get trapped into vicious circles of monitoring their symptoms and restricting their activities beyond what is necessary. 
and that this can cause more symptoms, more concerns and more changes so that it becomes a psychiatric condition. But he also goes on to say that one of the enigmas is why certain infections like glandular fever are much more likely to trigger chronic fatigue syndrome, while others, such as influenza, don't cause chronic fatigue syndrome. So it really looks to me like he's admitting that it starts off as a physical illness and where the sufferers of chronic fatigue syndrome and perhaps the other researchers might disagree with him is whether or not their ongoing symptoms mean that they're still suffering something or whether they just... Their concern about their suffering, it seems to be he's saying it's a, it's a belief disorder, that their belief that there's something wrong actually produces the symptoms. Apart from the fact that it's disrespectful of the patient's reporting, it doesn't really seem to be something that you could easily disprove to someone who is asserting that your belief that you're sick is what's making you sick. And you say, well, okay, how do I stop believing it? Well, the way he treats people is cognitive behavioural therapy and graded exercise. Now, if, as he believes, you've had a long illness and you've recovered from it, but you don't know you've recovered from it because you're acting as if you're still ill, then, sure, you would get deconditioned because you wouldn't be exercising because one of the defining conditions of chronic fatigue syndrome is that exercise makes you sick. You get much worse when you exercise if you have chronic fatigue syndrome. So if you have chronic fatigue syndrome and you've been fighting it for years and someone comes and says, ah, we know what you need, you need an exercise program, you probably won't be too enthusiastic because you know from experience that it makes you sick. But that's what he had people do. Now, how successful is he? Well, he says a third of the time he cures people, a third of the time he gets some sort of improvement, and a third of the time there's nothing he can do for them. Now, scientifically, this doesn't seem like he's proved his hypothesis that it's a psychiatric condition resulting from long-term illness. Because if 66% of people don't get cured by his treatment, then it doesn't really look like it's a treatment that's been scientifically proved. There doesn't seem a good reason to disbelieve these people who've been going on for years, who've gone for doctor after doctor and perhaps seen psychiatrists and counsellors and endocrinologists and gastroenterologists and lots of GPs. So he doesn't actually say all the things that are attributed to him in the headlines, though. And I have a worry that a lot of people will take away the headline summary rather than the careful wording that he actually uses. So... Whoever chose the headline, whether it was the interviewer, whether it was the editor or or somebody else, should be a bit more careful that they don't exaggerate the story and lead to a misunderstanding. And people shouldn't be too quick to say that your beliefs about your illness are what's causing your illness until they've thoroughly exhausted the physical tests. Chronic fatigue syndrome is also known as ME, or myalgic encephalomyelitis. The ME Association in the United Kingdom have put a letter on their homepage as a response to the new scientist interview. Dr. Charles Shepherd, honorary medical advisor, writes, editor, as a doctor with no mental health problems who developed chronic fatigue syndrome as a result of chickenpox encephalitis, I can fully understand why people with this illness feel so angry when it is flippantly described as almost all in the mind or how people can think themselves sick. Having an inaccurate or derogatory psychosomatic label attached to a condition creates all kinds of practical problems for patients, inappropriate or harmful treatments, and refusal of certain benefits in particular, as well as discouraging biomedical research into the underlying cause. 
Fortunately, there are clinicians and researchers who believe that chronic fatigue syndrome has a solid physical basis involving infection, immunology, endocrinology, and neurology. As a result, the Medical Research Council has just set up an expert group to look at these areas of causation. When it comes to treatment, the ME Association has just completed analysing the results from the largest survey of patient opinion ever carried out, over 4,000 respondents. Not surprisingly, these results clearly show that over 50% report the behavioural treatments, such as cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, and graded exercise therapy, GET, are either ineffective or harmful. So please, can the new scientist return to the more objective position it took in 2006 when it reported on the neurological abnormalities in the spinal cord, that is, dorsal root ganglionitis, in a 32-year-old woman who died as a result of having chronic fatigue syndrome, and in 2005, when it reported in abnormalities in gene expression, neither of which could possibly be caused by abnormal thought processes. Yours sincerely, Dr. Charles Shepard, Honorary Medical Advisor in the Association. That was a very diplomatic response there from Ian Wolfe. We're going to go outside a little bit later and he's going to tell me what he really thinks about the topic. And now for a new segment, and it's one we're going to call Correlation of the Week, or Correlation of the Week. It's a small segment which I'm going to use to highlight some bad correlations that have been quoted in the media. For instance, on my website, I was quite easily able to correlate the performance of the Australian cricket team with the price of oil, two things obviously not connected. A correlation between data sets can occur for three reasons. Firstly, there is a direct cause and effect relationship between the two sets. For example, if it rains a lot in one week, then umbrella sales will go up. The level of rainfall has caused an increase in umbrella sales. The two data sets are directly related. The second way we can get a correlation is if there is an underlying reason for the two data sets to move together, as opposed to one causing the other. For example, the heavy rain has also caused more road accidents. Umbrella sales and road accidents may now look correlated, but one is not actually causing the other. It's the rain that's causing both. In some cases, you would need to look through a few degrees to find the underlying cause. And thirdly, there may be no cause and effect and no underlying reason for the correlation. It's simply a coincidence or the work of a devious statistician. This is the reason why I was able to correlate the results of the Australian cricket team with the price of oil. You can change scales, you can change time periods, all to try and make a point where there really isn't one. Now, the first correlation of the week that we're going to have on Mr Science is the recent news out of Florida that shark attacks have reduced worldwide because of the global financial crisis. In 2008, sharks attacked 59 people, the lowest number of attacks since 57 in 2003, according to George Burgess, director of the International Shark Attack File, part of the Florida Museum of Natural History on the University of Florida campus in Gainesville. In 2007, there were 71 attacks. Now, Burgess said, One can't help but think that the downturn in the economy played a part. To have a shark attack, you have to have humans and sharks in the water at the same time, he said. If you have a reduction in the number of people in the water, you're going to have a reduction in the opportunities for people and sharks to get together. So far, so good. That seems about right. There probably is a correlation between the number of shark attacks and the number of people swimming at any one time. 
However, then he goes on to say, We noticed similar declines during the recession that followed the events of 2001, despite the fact that human populations continued to rise. Burgess's argument is that because of the recession, people have less free time on their hands and perhaps are enjoying their lives not as much, so they don't go to the beach, therefore don't get in the water, therefore shark attacks go down. Now, of course, I probably don't really need to explain to you why this is all a bit of a crock. But like a lot of things, I don't actually lay the blame at the feet of Burgess because it doesn't take very much for the media to pick up on such a thing and have it as a story, although quite a lot of places on the web and in newspapers have poked a bit of fun at this story. One article suggests that as the number of people eaten by sharks seems to correlate with the economy, if more people are eaten, the economy will go up. So the sharks must be eating those responsible for the financial problems we're in at the moment. Interesting. A colleague of work suggested to me that because people are poor at the moment, they're not eating so much salmon and they're actually eating more flake, which means there are less sharks in the ocean to go and eat people. There's another theory for you. And another point is that in 2008 there were 59 attacks and in 2007 there were 71 attacks. There's a difference of 12. Could this be statistical noise? I think there's a very, very good chance it is just noise. The register.co.uk calls Burgess the world's first sharkonomics expert and that this research may see the birth of a new hot streak of shark research, even more interesting than the specialist engineering involved in mounting laser death rays to sharks' heads. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. Now, evidently, my cycloptic colleague informs me that that can't be done. Uh, Can you remind me what I pay you people for? Honestly, throw me a bone here. What do we have? So there you have it. Sharks and the global financial crisis. You have been awarded... Correlation of the Week. Well, that's about all we have time for in this week's edition of the Diffusion Science Radio Show. If you'd like any more information on any of the topics we've covered today or anything we've covered in the past, then get over to our website at diffusionradio.com. From there, you can subscribe to our podcast, leave comments on the show, and you can even email us. That email address is diffusion at 2SCR.com. We come to you from the lovely new 2SCR studios in Sydney and are broadcast across Sydney on 2SCR, across Australia on the Community Radio Network and across the world on the podcast. Today's show was produced by Ian Wolfe and the other voice you heard was that of Jackie Hayes. Oh, and of course me, Mark West, I presented the show. Looking forward to seeing you next week on the Diffusion Science Radio Show. Early when the sleeping pill wakes me, I take a wake up pill to fill with energy. I power on hard and I check my messages, but I don't have any messages. I take a driving pill and head to my car. I drive around the because work isn't very far. I call my phone and I check my messages, but I don't have any messages. All I know, driving on drugs feels better when they're prescription. All I know, the world looks beautiful, the world looks so damn beautiful. 
feel fantastic And I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now Right now I feel fantastic And I never felt as good as how I do right now Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day When I felt the way that I do right now Right now Right now Anything but quiet these days I try to mitigate my concentration haze I can see the day unfold in front of me So I take the stairs and hit the gym The phone is ringing when I get to my desk What was the sting now a sharp pain in my chest So I take a calm and next and just chill And then it's time for lunch again All I know is work is easy When you don't stress out about deadlines All I know is I take my medicine I always take my medicine Fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now. I feel fantastic, and I never felt as good as how I do right now. Except for maybe when I think of how I felt that day, when I felt the way that I do right now, right now, right now, right now, right now, right